Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm Kate Kumaladun. Today we take you to the University of Maine, where Dr. Heather Cox Richardson discussed the future of the humanities. This program was pre-recorded on October 14, 2022, for broadcast at this time. It will be archived on our website, mainpublic.org. Click on radio to hear this program again at your convenience and to access many other past Speaking in Maine programs. This program will also be available as a podcast. Introducing our speaker today is Emily Haddad. Good afternoon. My name is Emily Haddad and I'm Dean of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at the University of Maine. It is my great pleasure to welcome you to UMaine's homecoming weekend and to our special McGillicuddy Humanity Center event. Please refer to your program for the University of Maine's land acknowledgement. This event is the finale of the center's 10th anniversary celebration. The Clement and Linda McGillicuddy Humanities Center's mission is to support excellent teaching, research, and public engagement in the humanities to deepen understanding of the human condition. Congratulations to the center on a wonderful first decade. Special welcome to our Humanity Center Board of Advisors and to all of the faculty and students involved in the center who are here today. Let me specifically recognize the director, Beth Wieman, and the immediate past president, Mike Sokolow, who is also the lead organizer for today's event. Joining us in the audience are President Joan Freeney Mundy and Chancellor Daniel Malloy, um, and many others uh, that, that I will not recognize by name, but, but appreciate your presence nonetheless. Thanks to everyone for coming today. I will introduce both of our guests and then let the conversation begin. Audience members who would like to ask a question will have the opportunity to do so after our guests have talked together. Microphones will be passed so that everyone can hear the questions. Our first guest is Brian Naylor. Mr. Naylor served as a national desk correspondent, White House correspondent, congressional correspondent, foreign correspondent and newscaster at NPR, National Public Radio, over a 39-year career prior to his retirement earlier this year. He is an illustrious alumnus of the University of Maine and is a member of the McGillicuddy Humanities Center Board of Advisors. Our featured guest today is Heather Cox Richardson, professor of history at Boston College and writer of the influential series Letters from an American, and the associated Then and Now podcast. Her Facebook page describes her as, quote, a political historian who uses facts and history to put the news in context, unquote. That page has 1.6 million followers. In short, she is a public historian. That number does merit applause, you're right. <laughs> she is a public historian who has earned the appreciation and respect of the public. Professor Richardson is the author of six books, most recently, How the South Won the Civil War. She earned her degrees from Harvard University. She was born in Maine and grew up in Yarmouth. Her family has deep ties to Maine and to the mariner history of coastal Maine in particular, back to the 1600s. As her many readers know, her series features images of the northern New England seascape provided by her spouse on a regular basis. 
I'm sure you're all looking forward to this conversation, so I will let us get started. Please welcome Heather Cox Richardson and Brian Naylor. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. And uh, I will begin uh, because I think most of our audience um, are interested in you and how you do what you do and why you do what you do. Um, my first question, I guess, would be to talk about letters from an American. How did that get started? What is, what is, where did that come from, the, the term letters from an American? Well, the, the page itself began on September 15th, 2019 and the, completely inadvertently. And the reason it began was because I had been writing on my professional Facebook page for a f number of years, just stuff that I wanted to put somewhere and didn't have anywhere else to put. Sometimes it was a personal essay, sometimes it was about history, and I hadn't written since July. And I had about 22,000 followers, and they were starting to write to me. And I, I'd gotten into trouble with the professor watch list, for example, before that, and they were concerned about me. So it was, uh, it was uh, September 15th, as I say, and I was painting my house and trying to move, and I needed to get back to Boston to teach, and it was a Sunday, and I was all set to get in the car and go back to Boston, and a yellow jacket stung me, stung me on my finger, and I'm allergic, and I didn't have my EpiPen, and so I didn't dare to get back in the car until I knew how bad my reaction was going to be, and I thought, this would be a very good time to write on my Facebook page. And the, th the 13th had been the day that Adam Schiff wrote to then acting director of the um, uh, DNI, uh, McGuire, saying that he knew that the uh, acting director was withholding a whistleblower complaint that by law had to go to these, the House Intelligence Committee. So he was directly accusing a member of the executive branch of breaking a law, not sort of vaguely you're taking money you shouldn't be, but rather, here's a statute, you have broken it. So I wrote about that, and then I closed the computer and felt I was okay to drive back to Boston, obviously was, and I got back to Boston, and there were thousands of comments with people going, wait, explain more about this, explain more about this, and I thought, well, I don't really want to crowd people's inboxes, so I don't want to write again tonight. That's really, you know, hogging the limelight, so, you know, I'll let it go, and next week I'll write again. And by the next day, there were so many comments, I thought, I better write again. And that was September 17th, and I've written every single night since. So I see it as a, a community. All I'm doing is answering the questions that everybody, including me, wants to know. Who is this character? Like, what, is, what does it mean to have an executive order? Who has to follow it? Who can testify? What's a subpoena? Who's behind all that material? that is coming at us every day, and that's all I do, is participate in this community. And it has gotten way bigger than me because it's about who we are and what we want and how we create communities. And so it's, I feel like I'm the luckiest person on earth. Not always at four o'clock in the morning do I think <laughs> I'm the luckiest person on earth, but until about 2.15, I'm definitely on board. Well, clearly you've tapped into something, and um, I know as a recovering journalist that it's in incredibly hard to do what you do every day in providing sort of an in-depth look and, uh, and historical context into what happened that day. Letters from an American, what is, what is that? Well, about three weeks into the writing, when the numbers were just coming at me constantly, I realized I had to 
add dates to the top of the letters, and I had to move it to a bigger platform, because people kept saying, we want a newsletter, we want a newsletter, and I literally went to my graduate students and said, what is a newsletter? And um, when, we, when I decided to do that, I needed a title for the newsletter. So I still remember Gray Day, probably still in, probably in October, walking up and down the halls of my department going, what should I call it, what should I call it, what should I call it? And one of the first documents to define what it meant to be an American, which literally has the line, what is this American, this new man, is Letters from an American Farmer by Hector St. John de Crevecourt, written in the early, uh, in the, during the early Republic. And at the same time, I had just finished listening again to Alistair Cook's Letters from America. And I thought, Letters from an American, which sounded really uh, dramatic and grandiose at the time, and now it kind of feels like it was the right decision. And you're on Substack, and for people who may not be as literate about these things, um, explain a little bit about that. It's a, basically a newsletter subscription service. It is. It's a plat for me, it's a platform. Yeah. I mean, it, it does many things. What it does for me is it sends out more than a million emails like that. Every other service when I started, you had to break them into batches of 10,000. And, you know, that's, that would have been a full-time job. So they can send out, you know, at least a million emails. It, they send them in two batches. So for me, it's just a... a Literally, all I do is use it to send emails, but it does do other stuff as well. And you do this all yourself. You don't, you don't have a staff. You, you, you've got all of these citations and uh, links to Twitter and, and uh, other, publish, uh, other publications, and this is where you're up until 4 in the morning. Uh, so people send me tips, and, and people, hint, hint, if anybody has good tips. <laughs> um, and these are not, I don't mean that these are people in the government sending me tips. These are somebody from, I, I was one of the first people to break the story that, uh, of just how bad coronavirus was going to be, and I got that from a man from Columbus, Ohio. I don't know who he was, but he said, ooh, they've just closed the Schwarzenegger bodybuilding competition. Oh, wow. And this is huge. And I'm like, right, I know. <laughs> you know. And so I looked it up, and I'm like, ooh, this really is huge. And he said, this is going to cost literally hundreds of millions, I can't remember off the top of, of dollars. This says this is going really big really fast. And that's the kind of thing people have their own niche interests that I would, I, stunningly, I did not know what a big deal, the Schwarzenegger bodybuilding, whatever it was, <laughs> thing was. But it was. It's a really big deal. Um, so it... Uh, I get tips from people who say, have you paid attention to this? But no, I read everything myself, and I then have to make sense of it, and that's the hard part. Yeah, yeah, it, it is, and these are hard times to make sense of many things. Uh, you uh, were born in Maine, grew up in Maine, and you still live in Maine on, on the coast. <laughs> um, how does that inform uh, your what you write and, and how, you, how you think. Well, I, I do have to say, Wikipedia is wrong. I was not born in Maine. I was actually born in Illinois, um, but grew up in Maine. You have, and, and you have a long family history. I have a very long that. family history. It's, it was a little bit of a fluke that I was born in Illinois, but um, there you go, <laughs> trivia for you. Um, uh, I think it informs what I do for a number of reasons that speak to what we're doing here at the McGillicuddy Humanities Center and why humanities are so incredibly important. And that's that I grew up on the coast of Maine with storytellers, very good storytellers. And what story is to me is it's the way we make sense of who we are as human beings. 
It's the way we make sense of the world around us. And it, is, it taps very deeply into our emotions and into who we are. And often the most profound stories are the simplest ones. And I think I took with me, when I left Maine to go to school, both that sense of storytelling and also, as a friend of mine said, you know, no wonder you're good at the 19th century because you never left it. You know, we, we heated with wood. We, you know, when I was a kid, we had water, but many of my friends didn't. So those worlds to me seem very close in a way that perhaps they would not have had I grown up in, you know, a more urban setting. So I think both of those things mattered. I also think that what Maine has done and what the University of Maine at Orono has been instrumental in doing is making higher education accessible to people who might not otherwise have recognized it. And, and one of the things that was so exciting about this university, becoming an R1 university, I think it was just last year, yeah. was the importance of the humanities in that and the importance of the doctorates in humanities in that. I mean, I think it's totally cool. This is one of the few universities in the country where history has bec been becoming more popular rather than less recently. But my introduction to the idea that you could really actually do this kind of for a living was when I had a history teacher my sophomore year of high school in Yarmouth who had a PhD in Maine history from University of Maine Orono. And I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. Like you can study this stuff and, and people like want you to do it and then you can get a job based in it. And had I think had I been at a place where there was more stratification, I might not have thought that that was accessible to a person who lived in what might have otherwise been perceived as the middle of nowhere. Well, so speaking of degrees, um, one of the uh, one of the uh, criticisms uh, of the humanities is that it doesn't necessarily provide you with a useful degree. That the studies, the the, the Washington Post uh, report uh, did a survey or or reported on a survey actually done by the Federal Reserve, saying that people who studied English or majored in history were less uh, regretted their choices and, and those who studied engineering and some of the, the, the STEM uh, programs uh, were more happy uh, with, their, with their outcomes. Now there was some pushback to this because it, you may regret majoring in history but that doesn't necessarily mean that maybe you would have preferred to major in English instead. Uh, so, but the question is, do the humanity, the importance of the humanities in terms of, um, in terms of forming kind of a cultural uh, backbone for our, for our society? I love that study and I love that question because I, I actually have a long, somewhat theoretical answer to that. But when coronavirus tore the bottom out of our lives, and it really did, as you all remember, what did people turn to? They turned to music. They turned to the arts. They turned to, to crafts. They turned to the humanities. They didn't say, hey, let's go out and talk to scientists and figure out what's going on. In fact, many people rejected the scientists. But what they did is they listened to Yo-Yo Ma on Twitter. They listened to, you know, people reading Shakespearean poetry. And that's not an accident. That was spontaneous. And, and again, one of the great, I thought one of the great examples of the humanity of that moment was people turning to sea shanties. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
<laughs> right. But, but what that was was an ability to do things together separately. That's what sea shanties are all about, right? You're, there's there's a, a, an obvious rhythm, there's a history, and you can be together in producing something apart, which to me the sea shanty is like the symbol of the coronavirus years, honestly. But what humanities do is, certainly history, and, and I could make a similar argument, a related argument about English and music, is they're the story of how and why things happen. What creates change? You know, is it great men? Is it religion? Is it economics? Is it ideas? It's the way that societies work. And if, in fact, you're going to be an informed member of society and able to make good choices, not only about your own life, but about the world in which you want to live, you have to understand the humanities. You have to understand history. You don't have to agree with each other, but you have to know that you think what really matters is as I say, ideas, which is what I care about, or what, what really matters is social movements, because otherwise you're just spinning your wheels. So the idea that we are not going to be important and we're gonna, that STEM is gonna be more important going forward. You know, I, I have three children, all of whom are scientists, and I always say to them, you know, you study what happens and how to do things, we study why to do things. So at the end of the day, what we do is kind of directing what you do. <laughs> and if we don't pay attention to that, we're in real trouble. And what was their reaction? Did they, did they buy that? Or <laughs> well, I, I, I have to say, I, I adore my children. And they, they, you grow up with it, and they're like, yeah, nice, nice new book, you know? <laughs> it, it strikes me that the humanities are uh, kind of on the front lines of the, the, the culture wars that we're um, engaged in these days, the uh, books that, uh, that uh, some people want to ban over 1,500 books in the, so far this year. There have been incidents where people have tried to get these out of school libraries or public libraries. Uh, the attacks on, on, on school curricula, the, uh, the uh, threats to librarians and teachers, and um, what, what, is, what is going on out there? And, and uh, what do we, yeah, how do we, how do we fight back, I guess? Did you ever think you would see this in America? I, I, I just, the, the, especially the book banning, um, it, it, it is really astonishing. And the attacks on our local representatives, our, the people in our school board. I mean, I assume that a lot of you here have been on school boards. It's kind of a thankless task to begin with. And then the idea that people are threatening your life is just mind-boggling. Yeah. Um, that being said, um, I do maintain that the reason that history matters and the reason that literature matters is because they are the stories of who we are and who we want to be. And the place to fight that battle has been in schools, for example, or in public understandings of what our history looks like. And there has been a move, not recently, but really over the last at least 40 years, and you could even push it back earlier if you wanted to. You know, one of the reasons that the Chicano movement is so fascinating in the um, 1970s, uh, 1960s really, is because what they're arguing for is the inclusion of their story in the curricula in California. And it's very consciously saying, hey, wait a minute, 
this, this state we're in is, is quite literally on land that belonged to us. What do you mean we shouldn't be part of the curricula? It was a question of stories and who we are. So when we see this moment now where there is such an insistence on one certain history, and this, of course, has a, uh, it, its own long history that didn't start with the former president, but that really was encapsulated there with the 1776 project. Um, I think what you're seeing is people who need to believe a certain story. The problem with that is, because we all make up stories about our lives, right? We all believe stories about our lives that aren't necessarily always true. Um, and that's an interesting study in itself. But the problem when a, when a nation rests on a story that isn't true is that pretty soon you start to try and force the people to fit that myth and that becomes really dangerous really fast. So what's happening, I think, in the attempts to change our curricula, to change what books children can read, and this idea of a, of a cultural war, which is, again, has much longer legs yeah. than just the last <clears throat> administration, is the idea of trying to say, wait a minute, this is the story of this country, and we're gonna stand on this story. The problem is it's not based in fact, the real story of our country is, is damning sometimes, and it's heroic sometimes, but mostly it's an incredibly human and, to my mind, exciting story about trying to achieve self-determination, which is, at the end of the day, what every human being wants. So when I see the fights over this, it makes me sad not only because of the attacks on school board meetings and not only because of the book burning, or book banning, not burning yet, um, and not only because of the attempts to, to limit our curricula, but because it seems like it's kind of missing the point and missing the extraordinary story of Americans who have created lives, in some cases, out of nothing, and in other cases, out of extraordinary oppression, and kept on trying, which at the end of the day is about all we can aspire to, it seems to me. And yet, and another facet of that, though, is to dealing with the, A, there are a lot of uh, people who don't want to believe the facts. They, they don't want, they have their own version of the truth. There's, and, and disinformation is so easily spread and lies and untruths are so easily spread on social media. Um, and uh, we see also in some states where they're trying to actually uh, say that platforms like Twitter or Facebook can't moderate their content. They have to let all of the uh, nastiness out there um, on a, on a, uh, as uh, un unfiltered, unedited. Un uh, um, where, uh, where do we go with that? Well, at the end of the day, this is a fight about the Enlightenment, right? This is a fight between those who believe that if you argue ideas in a public forum, the best ones will emerge. Not instantly, believe me, but that sooner or later that somebody will get to the right answer and that's how you achieve things. And that idea, as it was developed, pushed back against the concept of a world based in traditions that are based in social hierarchies or in religions <clears throat> or in mythology and, you know, sort of a, a world based in, um, in that is shaped by uh, certain mythologies. And I'm defining that really broadly. And the, the question to me is, do you believe in the idea that people will gravitate toward well-argued 
positions, or do you believe that people must be shaped by their uh, by a, a certain kind of worldview that determines how they behave. And that's really interesting, the way that's, that anti-enlightenment position has developed since the 1950s in this country. And if anybody cares, I'd be happy to talk about that. But the thing about social media nowadays, I think, is twofold. One is every time we get at least in America, I won't speak for any other country, but every time we get a new major technology, we misuse it. <laughs> and then people put guardrails around it, and then we sort of domesticate it, and then it becomes fine. So for a while, social media was in the, meaning no disrespect, I call it the Wild West stage. Um, I have no problem with there being open fora at all and making them open to whomever wants to speak on them. What I do have a really big problem with is the misuse of those media thanks to technology. So for example, you can have one person running 150 accounts that make it sound like there's a groundswell in favor of some wacko idea. A bot. A bot, bots and trolls. and those. Those are interesting because those could be controlled by, by working on the algorithms, which currently privilege certain voices over others. And that, that if we insisted as a people that those be hemmed in and restore the playing field to level, I have no problem at all. I, I really believe that, that people would, st you know, we used to all walk past the National Enquirer every day at the grocery store, and I never believed that Bat Baby was real, right? <laughs> but but if, if you saw it on the New York Times and you saw it on everywhere, why should you be like, hey man, Bat Baby, you know? And so that to me, it's almost like they're separate ideas. And the idea that you need to have bots and trolls and the psyops is what they essentially are, taking over our population to return it to one that is myth-based seems to me to be extraordinarily dangerous and one that we should all be paying very close attention to. I will say on that front, on my Facebook page, I think one of the reasons it has become so popular is we work incredibly hard to get rid of the bots and trolls. And because they're not, the, the people who go onto that Facebook page, if you follow it and who are asking you to friend them or who are selling cryptocurrency or, or doing porn or whatever shows up on that page, they're not doing that because they think you're gonna friend them. They're doing it to stop what is to me reasoned, intelligent conversation to get rid of that public forum. And I think the reason it survived as a public forum is that, you know, I, I bet people spend at least eight hours a day zapping the trolls on it. Really? Yeah. yeah. These are uh, friends, uh, supporters, or, yeah. or, or, or yeah. yeah. And huh. me. I mean, yeah. I, the, in the middle of the night, it's usually me. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's. But they could, you know, Facebook could do that if they wanted well, to. Well, right. It's not like, it's not like you're making a call going, hmm, this might really be this guy from Persia, you're, you're, it's pretty clear. Same language, you know, same, you know. I was born in Paris and now I live in Nebraska yeah. and I did my work at the Sorbonne and, you know. But what do you do with a guy who is a political leader, say, and is calling on his followers to um, mob, uh, attack the Capitol, say? <laughs> that would never happen. Should you be allowed to say that person uh, shouldn't have that forum anymore? I think 
Well, you're, I and think I'm you're asking, you on about, the spot. I think I you're asking I mean, about Twitter, for example. Sure, yeah. that's a private company. The the bigger issue is, but but of but course now we have these lines between these private companies that are actually our public fora, and that's something I think. Speaking of the Wild West, we need to work out. But I think one of the issues with exactly what you say is not so much a, a former leader doing that, but the number of enablers who are also doing that and who are not being called out by the people who could do so. And by that, generally, although I hate to say it because I really care deeply about people who are working in that field, and I know their work is very difficult, but there are a lot of journalists who could do a lot better job about ceasing to be microphones and being much more fact checkers in real time. And that's a, that's a problem. Um, I, we want to allow some uh, members of the audience to ask questions, but uh, I just wanted to, to end uh, this part by asking you uh, a question that was put to me earlier today. And, and people who, who read you uh, uh, feel deeply and um, so when I said, I told him I was going to be interviewing you and, and he said, oh, give her a hug for me. <laughs> and I don't know if he even knew you, but. Um, <laughs> we are a great community. I gotta say, if any of you are part of it here, it's a really nice group of people. And so what, what should people take away from, your, from what you're right? Um, how should they act on, on what, uh, what you do out there, what you say? So this speaks to the humanities again. People have different ideas about the way the world works. I believe that ideas change society. I believe that if you change the way people think, they change the way they behave, and they can make a different set of demands, for example, on their politicians, or on the way that they believe our economy should work. Um, I'm not advocating those positions myself, because my job, as I see it, is to keep people in the reality-based community and to let them know what the facts are so that they can decide what they think matters. So many people look at what I do and say, we need to get out the vote, we need to make people vote, all of which I believe in. But what people can do for me after they read the letters is insist on the facts, insist on what is real and on what kind of a world you want to see. So saying, listen, I really care deeply, and I'm just going to throw this out here, that we support Ukraine because they are developing a democracy that is allying with Europe and that that matters to me as an American because I think democracy is important and this is a form of government I care about. Defending that, Defending the idea of democracy, I mean, that's what I'm all about, but simply using your voice. And then, of course, using your vote and using your money and running for office and all those things that other people do much better than me is important. But using your voice to stand up for what you believe in, I think, is the way you turn a ship of state around. And think about it, think of why they use bots and trolls. You wouldn't bother with bots and trolls. You wouldn't bother about insisting on alternative facts if you didn't think that really mattered. And that's the piece, I think, that people who care about democracy kind of fell asleep on the job with because many of us thought that everyone loves democracy, right? We don't have to defend it. And we have woken up, I think, in the 21st century and realized that, in fact, it needed defending. 
and many of us care very deeply about it, and I think the vast majority of us care deeply about it, but aren't really aware of how much work it is mm -hmm. and how much protection yeah. it needs from those who have managed to take over the reins of our government and also other governments. So when I say, when people always want me to tell them to go support a certain candidate or whatever, and all those things are very important for sure, but what is most important to me is that when somebody in the grocery store says to you, you know, Hunter Biden's, I don't even know what the scandal is now, to say, that's not true. And that's, you know, I understand you're upset about X, but that's not true. Here's what is true. Just finally, how long do you expect to be able to keep up the pace uh, that, that you work at now? Or how long will you be doing these daily uh, about letters? I said three months originally. And then, um, and then I virtually wrote in stone that I would do it 100 days into the Biden administration because everything was going to be fine then. <laughs> now, I, I hate to say I'm committed, uh, but I expect to continue through the 2024 election. But at some point, this has to stop. And yeah. I am not going to be, you know, 162 going, you know, <laughs> we, we, this moment too shall pass. And, and these, these rose organically and they will fall organically. I have every confidence in that. And I'm, I feel like, as I say, I'm the luckiest person in the world to have been here to chronicle it. And, and the day will come when we, when we all shut that door and you think, remember that woman who wrote that stuff? <laughs> Boy, those were terrible times. I hope she's in her kayak somewhere having a lovely time. <laughs> but, but I don't actually remember what her name is. <laughs> and that will mean that we did our jobs. <laughs> well, let's hope that day comes sooner rather than uh, later. And uh, we're all grateful and, and lucky to have you. Uh, out there and, uh, and in our inboxes every morning. Um, so uh, I think there are a couple of folks that are going to have microphones who can be summoned. And uh, if you have a question for, uh, for Heather Cox Richardson, please uh, feel free to stand up, raise your hand, and yeah. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for, uh, I'm right here in the middle of the floor. Oh, there you go. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, my question is more or less, could you comment on, I'm gonna say mandatory training or mandatory education related to humanities and civics at grade school, junior high and high school level? I say this anecdotally, I've been away from the education system a long, long time. And it seemed that there was a diminished uh, influence being put on this and it seems like it's more important now, especially when you have a certain senator from Alabama who talks about the three branches of government being the House, the Senate, and the President, and, and we fought World War II to fight communism, and you know those kind of things that seem very basic. Well, it, it absolutely speaks to the importance of humanities, right? And to the importance of civics as well. Um, there, I mean, believe us, believe me, none of us has enough time to talk about the, the larger issues of education, um, which, speaking of humanities, one place that, that we can never go wrong, I think, is to support K through 12 schools. And I have to say, again, shout out to one of my teachers here in Yarmouth, 
Um, I had a very good education here in Maine, and it really mattered. I mean, not only in the civics, but also in, I, that's where I learned to write. I mean, we actually had to learn to diagram sentences and stuff. Anyway, that's a, that's a rabbit hole. But um, I do think it's very important. I would add, though, that I think one of the things that my work will be moving toward, and I think is important, is continuing ed. Because we focus on K through 12 as we should, but I don't know about you, I, I didn't understand history until I got older. Like, you're busy trying to figure out if you like broccoli and, you know, what the name of that cute guy who just moved in is, and, and maybe trying to learn enough geometry that you can get a degree. And then you get to college, and yes, I ended up in history, but then you're busy trying to learn how to do whatever one does. If one doesn't go into history, I miss that part. But it was really in the, the my post college years that I started to see how things knit together, because I was ready for that. And I remember in college taking an entire course on the French Revolution. We read like 13 books on the French Revolution. Nobody told me it came after the American Revolution, which again, mm -hmm. that seems like it would have been a useful piece of information. <laughs> and, and you, the more those pieces that, that, be, that come clear as you get older, I think it is the, the easier it is to say, oh, wait, three branches of government. Oh, wait a minute, this is why what we, who we put on the Supreme Court matters. If you had tried to teach me as a sophomore in, in high school or, or, or college or high school that the Supreme Court was important, I mean, I think I figured out there was a Supreme Court, but that's probably as far as it went. I wonder the degree to which we ought to be focusing, at least in civics and history, on continuing ed, on courses, on making it easy for people to learn how the system works, once they're mature enough to understand that it matters. And that's kind of the direction that I hope to take my work going forward is, you know, making it fun to keep doing this stuff when we're ready for it. Although it is kind of fun to do the little, I'm just a bill. <laughs> There's, there's been a great version of that lately, like, I'm just a bill. I got no hope of passing because of the filibuster. Heather, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was thinking about this huge problem that you alluded to about the amplification of propaganda with bots, et cetera, and the amplification of moneyed interests with Citizens United. And it's working. That's the problem, of course. It's a vicious cycle. These people get elected with these terrible strategies that are bad for us all. I don't see how it, you know, regulation could help, but the politicians who are good with this, because that's working for them, it's, I just worry that it's, how's this going to end? Well, so I'm a prophet of the past, not of the future, so I can't tell you how it's going to end. <laughs> but I would say something different than it is working. I would say it has worked. And it has worked in part because no one was paying attention. And this is, I'm so glad you said that because people always say to me, how can you, I mean, things are terrible. How can you be cheerful? I feel better about this country now than I did 10 years ago. Because for anybody who was watching closely, as people like me were, we have been moving in the direction that we ended up in now since at least the 1990s. And we were, you know, athwart the train engine screaming, stop, stop. And people would say, 
oh, signing statements, that's cute. Like, like, why should I care about a signing statement? And of course, it was part of a larger story that began during the Reagan administration with a memo from now uh, Justice uh, Samuel Alito, he was then in the D Department of Justice saying, we can claw power for, away from Congress and put it in the executive branch if we start using signing statements in this way. So we need to start using them on things people aren't paying attention to, and then we can move them into much bigger things, as happened under the George W. Bush administration, who said, you know, I'm simply not going to follow these parts of the law because I don't, that's not the way I'm interpreting this law until you got to the Trump administration where that president said, um, I'm simply not going to appoint somebody to oversee the distribution of a certain set of money, even though Congress says I have to. So the fact that people are awake now and saying, hey, hang on a minute, we need to stop this. It's a little bit late in the game. It would have been nice if we had decided to stop it 10 years ago, but at least we're trying now. And I find that incredibly exciting. And as I say, one of the things that I feel like we have missed in part because of the lack perhaps of emphasis on civic responsibility and of a we in America, one of the things that I am seeing certainly in my own life and my own work, but also in communities across the country is people saying, wait a minute, we're actually pretty decent people, and we actually want to have a say in who represents us, and we're actually pretty reasonable. Why did we let our system get taken over by people whose vision of the world is so crabbed and so angry all the time? And so I, you know, I, I can't promise at all that it's going to end up in a place that people like me anyway are comfortable. In fact, a lot of people worry a lot about where we're going. but. I promise you we're in better shape now than we were when no one was paying attention because it was happening then. Citizens United, right? 2010. Um, uh, Shelby V. Holder, 2013. And Citizens United, there was an outcry about. But there weren't mobs in the streets saying, wait a minute here, you just sold our... Uh, our government to the highest bidder. And if you remember, the big story then was the guy from South Carolina who yelled, you lie. And nobody quite understood why that was a big deal. So the fact that we're paying attention now gives me enormous hope. You know, because there are other times in our history when people started paying attention and hadn't been before, and they were times like, you know, the 1760s and times like the 1850s, and times like the 1890s, and times like the 1930s. And in all of those cases, and remember, those cases were not times when things were, you know, pretty much okay and a little bit not okay. And, in, you know, in 1939, there is a giant Nazi rally in Madison Square Garden. And it really looks as if America is going to go fascist. There, there's a, a major movie that comes out about then called Gabriel Over the White House, which is a program essentially for a fascist takeover. And it really looked to a lot of people like we were going to lose our democracy. And people like FDR, but also the people who supported him, stood up and said, no, that's not what this country stands for. And people nowadays are doing that again. Alexander Vindman changed a lot when he stood up in front of Congress and said, here, right matters. Adam Schiff, when he stood at the, at the impeachment trial and said, this is why you must defend this country, not why it should be defended, but why you must defend it. And I find it actually, um, I mean, we'd all like to live in calm times, certainly I would, but isn't it nice in a way to get to be the people who get to reclaim our country? I, I, I kind of wish I weren't, but 
Every generation has had its challenge, and this, I guess, is ours. Uh, I wanted to ask a question about the sort of role you play as a teacher. And I think like most people in this room, I've really benefited and enjoyed the emails I get regularly from you, and I really appreciate their clarity and their precision. But they also have a certain kind of advocacy to them. And so I'm curious if you have a different sort of hat you wear as a teacher, or if you sort of have a consistent voice as a teacher and as a writer. That's a great question, and the, there, there, it, there's a number of pieces to that. Let me start with the letters, because I am a strong advocate in the letters of democracy. And many people make the mistake of thinking that I am pushing certain policies when what I am trying to do is clarify those policies so people can make their own decisions about them. What I am staunchly against, though, are the people in our country nowadays who are attacking the, the foundations of our democracy. That is actually not a partisan stance, and the, the, that's, a, that's a much longer conversation that I'd be happy to go into. But that's the letters where I am advocating democracy. What I do in a, student, in a classroom of students is different because the relationship between a student and a, and a professor, a student and a teacher, is a power relationship. A teacher is much more powerful in that setting, I think, than when somebody has actively chosen to seek out what I do, many of whom already have their own ideas about the way the world works. So what I try and do in a classroom is model the Enlightenment. You may argue anything you want so long as you can support it with evidence and so long as you're not attacking your fellow students. And that is a very different kind of model than I do in the letters. And that's one of the things that's been a little bit problematic for me as I have gotten more prominent is that many students either expect me to advocate for certain policies or for certain political parties or expect that they will hate me because of what they, ex they think that I'm going to do. And what I try and do in a classroom is hold the playing field level so that you can listen to things that you don't necessarily agree with and learn. And that is, you know, in a, funnily enough to me, I have been asked by the entire spectrum of clubs in my university to sponsor them because they feel that it's a safe place, that they, they are comfortable doing so. But it's in both cases, and the reason I said there's a number of, of lanes there, in both cases what I consider myself doing is teaching. That is, in many ways, what a teacher does, certainly in the letters, I have a skill set that men, not many people do because I've been very well taught by very good people and I recognize my debt to them. But in many ways, I'm simply a prism through which a, a, a ton of material is, is being refracted to explain to people what's happening. That's one kind of teaching, and the idea is to return the concept of a public sphere to a fact-based discourse. A classroom is also teaching, but it's refracting something different, to, to my mind, and it's refracting the idea of basing arguments on fact. And, and what that, 
that what that model is designed to do is to teach critical thinking and to teach and to introduce people to ideas they might not, not otherwise know, which is not really the same thing I'm trying to accomplish in the letters. And I don't actually see those two things being in conflict, but many of the people either on social media or in my classrooms sometimes seem to confuse the two and expect to see things in either side that aren't there. There is a larger philosophy, teaching philosophy, behind what I do in both of those spheres, but they are not the same sphere, which is probably way more than you wanted to know. <laughs> I do think a lot about this because I think that it's really important as a teacher or in any relationship to recognize power and, and to recognize that there are times when your role is to advocate and there are times when your role is to not advocate because of those things are both important at different times. I think we have time for one or two more questions from the audience. Thank you so much for your letters and for being here today. And uh, I appreciate what you said about that by the time students are in college, they might not see the breadth of, of how civics works, especially because of our civics education up until college. And I liked the idea of a future or postgraduate um, education. As a po I'm a politician, so I represent Orno in the legislature. And I, I think what you said about talking to people about their fears and the things that they've heard and trying to base the discussion in a story, but also to make sure it's based in fact is so important. And you also mentioned that you see your work, that you'll do the letters perhaps up until the 2024 election. So you do measure things by elections, and certainly I do. We have less than a month before the election. How do you, what do you say to encourage people, the people here in this audience and your audience elsewhere about having those often difficult conversations talking to with our neighbors and members of the community who may be um, outside of social media, con continuing uh, the discussions with not based on non-facts and then which may cause them to vote in a way that's not to the best of our democracy? That's a great question. And I, I first I have to say I am very impressed by many of Maine's representatives. Um, not meaning just their representatives, but the people who represent Maine at different levels of our governments, local, state, and federal as well. Um, we just, you know, can I just say, and I think this is being recorded, so I guess I'm putting it out here for posterity, Maine people rock, you know? <laughs> like, I will never forget, and this is a bit of, a, an, a, a bit of an aside, but when, you, you may not remember, but right after um, Senator Angus King uh, was, was uh, up in Washington, there was some brouhaha over the Patriot Act. And everybody who was on the Senate Intelligence Committee, all the, the, the Republicans on the Senate Intelligence Committee were like, oh, we had no idea that they were collecting that information. And I heard King on a, on a television show go, I knew it, they gave us briefings. Weren't they reading the briefings? And I'm like, dude, you are great. Because of course they were doing it, right? And like everyone, I had no idea. It's like, of course you knew. And it was like, and, and then the, the interviewer was like, uh, that was my interview. Like, I got yeah. nothing to follow up with it. Um, so one of the things that I think it's very hard for those of us who are trying to watch the news to communicate as well as we need to is that right now the country is, and I do not mean to denigrate 
the many things that are wrong with this country, but right now America is in extraordinarily good shape compared to where we were five years ago, two years ago, seven years ago. Our economy, not evenly spread, I mean, I could do all the caveats for you. Our economy has done more for ordinary people than it has since, well, the 1950s at this point. The economy is decent. The, the, the what America has done to step back up to the plate to defend democracy around the world is mind-boggling. And this is one of the things, actually, I, Alex Jones d destroyed me this week because I had a piece all ready to go about um, the, you, you didn't even see it because it was the same day that there was the Alex Jones um, almost billion dollar decision about his damages that he has to pay for misrepresenting what happened at Sandy Hook. But the administration released its national security plan for 2022. And the fact that we have had Joe Biden in that seat, Joe Biden who is by far the most adept foreign policy worker since Eisenhower, has been, you know, I said to, to my husband the other day, you know, every once in a while America lucks out, you know, we get Abraham Lincoln, which was an incredibly irresponsible nomination, and he turns out to be a genius. Um, FDR dies before he becomes a dictator, you know, and then I could also talk about the things we did wrong, but whoever thought that Joe Biden was, I can't believe I put it that way. Some of us were a bit surprised when, Joe Biden turned out to inherit the largest European war since World War II, and to use it as a lever to defend democracy around the world and at home. I mean, it, it, is, it is something that should be the headline of every newspaper every day, and it's kind of falling under the radar screen. So in terms of talking about where we are nowadays, you know, manufacturing is up. Last numbers I checked were 47,000 new manufacturing yeah, jobs in the country. Yeah. We've been hemorrhaging manufacturing for years. It's coming back. That is, we're above where we were before the pandemic. As I say, last I saw was 47,000 jobs, but there should be a new jobs report coming out. Um, the only industry that has not recovered since the pandemic is um, hospitality and services, but that's because so many people have gone into transportation since we're bringing our supply chains home. And crucially, the one that really has not recovered is K-12 education. We're down 300,000 jobs. Um, but for most people, the world is looking a lot better. And a lot of the things that they dreamed of, the return of manufacturing, is happening. You know, our... our um, uh, roads and bridges are getting rebuilt. We've been begging for an uh, inf infrastructure bill now since, I don't know, 1971. I'm making that up. I'm totally making that up. But we're actually getting stuff rebuilt. We're, we're, we're actually funding the things that matter to most Americans. Under the Inflation Reduction Act, we've got a cap on... on insulin prices, we've got Medicare being able to negotiate for prices for the first time, like all other uh, Western-based uh, Western uh, influential democracies, we're actually catching up to the rest of the world. Those things matter, and they're not getting the oxygen that they ought to because so many other things are grabbing our attention. And for journalists, and I am not a journalist, by the way, I'm a, I'm a historian, it's very difficult to cover this extraordinary national security plan, for example, 
which is going to be in all the history books, because Alex Jones just got sued for, or got, got a decision against him. It's a bill that's, if you include the one from back in Texas and the fact he's got more coming, it's over a billion dollars. So when I think about trying to, to nego not negotiate, trying to talk about what's happening in the world at this moment with people who may have a very sour view of it, our world is actually a lot better than most people are aware of, and that's worth keeping in mind. Well, on that hopeful and optimistic note, I think it's time to uh, wrap things up. I have a few thank yous uh, to, uh, to make. I want to thank the McGillicuddy Humanities Center and Dr. Beth Wieman, the center's director, and Dr. Brian Jansen, the center's humanities specialist, for arranging today's event, which was produced in collaboration with the University of Maine Foundation, the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, the Collins Center for the Arts, and its director, Danny Williams, and as part of Homecoming with the UMaine Alumni Association. And thanks to all of you here in attendance for your support of the humanities, both here on campus and out in the public. And finally, thanks to Dr. Heather Cox Richardson for her commitment to raising the profile and the relevance of the humanities for so many people at a time when their value is being questioned. Welcome back to campus all, and please enjoy the rest of homecoming. Thanks very much. Thank you for being here. Thank you, and keep the faith. listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. Today was a talk from Dr. Heather Cox Richardson. If you missed part of the program or want to hear it again, you can always find it on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to access this program and many other archived Speaking in Maine programs. Music in this hour comes from Our Alarm Clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine. And Speaking in Maine is produced by me, KG Kimaladun. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio.